Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 7th, 2013, and my guest is Guillermo Calvo of Columbia University. He writes widely on international capital markets, debt, and many other issues related to macroeconomics. Guillermo, welcome to EconTalk. Oh, thank you very much. Our topic for today is a recent paper you've written titled Puzzling Over the Anatomy of Crises, Liquidity and the Veil of Finance. Now, there are many who argue that the current crisis is nothing new. The old models can explain the new world we find ourselves in, but your title suggests some uncertainty about what got us into this mess, and your focus is on the role of money in the financial sector. I want to start with the expression, money is a veil. What do economists mean when they say that? Well, that's a very deep concept, if you wish, uh, that uh, economists develop in order to show that uh, money really does not add anything uh, substantial to the economy uh, beyond uh, what the real sector can do for you. Uh, so, And that helped to, uh, for example, explain the possibility that uh, if you increase money supply, all that will happen is that prices will increase in the same uh, proportion. Uh, so that that helped to sort of uh, put uh, money in its place, if you wish. But uh, that uh, result uh, is uh, based on on some assumptions that uh, when you make them explicit, you realize that you are talking about a special case. Uh, so once again, uh, <clears throat> coming back to the concept, the veil of money intends to convey the notion that money could or is essentially a veil, but it doesn't imply that in practice it will be a veil. And actually, uh, the veil was removed by macroeconomists many years ago. I mean, when Keynes and other uh, uh, economists work on this subject uh, and was shown that if there were some uh, uh, price or wage rigidities, uh, the veil proposition will not hold. And money, not only when you increase it, will have an effect on prices, but it might have also an effect on output. On the real side of the economy as opposed to the nominal side, for those who want to hear the jargon, the nominal right. side of the economy is just the level of prices. That shouldn't matter. In theory, it shouldn't matter at all if everything is twice as high, if all prices are doubled and all incomes are doubled. In theory, then money is what economists call neutral. It doesn't have exactly. any, any real impact on how much I can produce, what I do with my uh, my my income, et cetera. But obviously um, – that requires, as you say, some special assumptions about expectations and knowledge about about what's going on. Now, as you point out, the economists over the last 70 or 80 years and uh, across the board have – across the political spectrum, across the ideological spectrum have worried about whether money has real impacts. 
still lots of disagreement about that. But what you focus on, which is related, which I I think uh, echoes what David Laidler said in a recent episode of Econ Talk, that we kind of treat monetary policy. We've we've come to understand that monetary policy is important, but we seem to suggest in our models. And sometimes in our policies, that monetary policy is somehow independent of the financial sector, which is a rather extraordinary idea. And you describe it as finance is avail. That you know what the exact structure of the banking system, the financials are. It's not so important. It's just the Fed does its thing. And but as you point out, we really should question that assumption. Right, and it's amazing that the assumption has been kept for so many years, uh, for the entire 20th century, uh, in the U.S. and in advanced economies. Uh, the assumption became less tenable uh, in an obvious way to analysts for emerging markets because emerging markets started to have the kinds of crisis that we have now in developed countries around the 1990s, 1995, was actually the first so-called tequila crisis. In, in Mexico, but uh, those crises seem uh, economists thought that it did not uh, uh, apply, if you wish, uh, to the U.S., uh, Europe, and other countries like that. So, in our models, we kept the, I mean, the models used in advanced economies uh, and uh, in all central banks. Uh, the uh, the assumption is that there is a sharp difference between money and the financial sector, and that the financial sector will take care of itself. That actually, monetary policy had essentially no, uh, nothing to do with the with the with the borrowing and lending that goes on in in financial markets, and that the best that uh, we can do is to let the market work and. Uh, for that sector to uh, equilibrate uh, without the intervention of, of government. So, from a formal point of view, what we did was to uh, to not focus at all on the role of uh, finance or financial uh, disarray or dysfunctionality, those sort of things, which for some analysts, a microeconomist uh, specialized in banking, uh, uh, I mean, those people paid attention to those things, but uh, macroeconomics sort of left them out because uh, macroeconomics is already a very complicated subject. Right. And, and they felt it's too hard around. already. Yeah. Right. <laughs> let's leave that out. If that's, it doesn't bother us, let's not, uh, let's not bring it in. Yeah, and some of that, and we'll talk about this, I think, generally is throughout the conversation, but some of that is just specialization. You know, there are people who are so-called finance economists. They didn't know much about macro, and macro economists didn't know much about finance. And a lot of the time, that was fairly harmless. It didn't seem to matter so much any more than a macro economist would be an expert, say, on oh, I don't know, uh, the high tech sector. Well, sometimes it's important; it's part of the economy. But you don't have to be a health economist to do macro. But it may turn out you need to be a financial economist to do macro. Exactly. And uh, perhaps one explanation why macroeconomists uh, felt comfortable leaving out the financial sector is that for a macroeconomist, a problem <clears throat> is uh, 
deserves attention if it is a, a macro problem or a systemic problem. But micro problems, and there are micro problems all the time, some banks go under, there is a crook out there in the system. Uh, those things are important from the point of view of, uh, of a microeconomist, but the macroeconomist could live very well without paying much attention to those things unless they become systemic. And I think the big difference uh, in the present crisis is that we have a systemic financial uh, problem. Yeah, I, I like to make a contrast of the current mess with the uh, the so-called tech bubble when internet stocks went very high. A lot of capital flowed into the internet. And um, when that stopped happening, when there was some fallout and some reorganization of the tech sector, when it became clear that not every business that was losing money would eventually make money, a lot of those firms went out, went bankrupt. They laid off their workers. It was very tough on some of those workers in some of the regions where those workers were located for a little bit of time. But the macroeconomic effects were fairly mild. That was not true in 2007 and eight when the financial sector exploded, or at least it doesn't seem to be true. Exactly. No, and that's very interesting what you're saying because the, the tech bubble uh, kind of reassured macroeconomies that there was no need for them to be paying too much attention to the, to the financial sector because they knew how to take care of themselves and uh, did not complicate the rest of the economy. Uh, so it came as a surprise what happened in 2008. Now, in your paper, and we will we'll put a link up to it for those who want to read the, the paper itself, and I recommend it. It has a lot of interesting uh, insights into the current mess as well as the history of economic thought, which we will be getting into in a little bit. But in your paper, you talk about what you call a sudden stop. And I want to talk about this issue of liquidity and credit having a sudden change in the climate, which seems to be the provoking, the instigating problem that leads to a set of, a cascade of other problems. What do you think happened in this last crisis just in terms of the logistics? What went wrong that caused the sequence of problems? Well, in a nutshell, I see the crisis as being triggered by a liquidity crunch, and we can talk about it. Yeah, talk about uh, what that means. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but let me uh, uh, draw the implications from that that I will elaborate on too. Go ahead. And that is that uh, liquidity crunch brings, given the characteristics of the financial instruments that were hit by the liquidity crunch, that had an impact on the credit market and brought about what I call a sudden stop. Now, the liquidity crunch is, is a phenomenon that uh, uh, should not surprise us at all because uh, we know that liquidity uh, liquidity is, is something that is very difficult to, to define. But everybody knows what the liquid asset is, something that you can sell easily in the market, that you can find uh, a counterpart someplace in the market to sell it uh, in a short period of time. Uh, so the, the, this, the, the standard financial instruments like bonds and stocks and so on, for which this is a very fluid market, you can sell them um, almost instantly. So those things are, are, are liquid. But uh, the liquidity depends on other people thinking that the instrument is liquid. 
uh, it's like with uh, paper money. Paper money is accepted not because it has any uh, value in itself, uh, but uh, because uh, the one who takes the paper money thinks that he will find another uh, a guy in the market to whom he can uh, buy by giving his paper money to him. Uh, so, so, but if for some reason uh, somebody says that uh, paper money is not accepted anymore, then it loses completely its value because it's not like a, a glass of milk. Uh, you cannot eat it. You cannot. Uh, very few things you can do with paper money. So, uh, but that if that characteristic translates or also affects. Uh, uh, any any asset that uh, that is endowed with liquidity, and something that happened uh, prior to this crisis is that uh, financial innovation uh, generated assets that uh, turned out to be very liquid. And one uh, uh, prominent example is uh, mortgage-backed securities. Prior to the invention of that uh, instrument, uh, mortgages. Uh, was a loan that uh, banks uh, held in their balance sheets. So they they lent $100,000 to somebody, and they had to wait until that uh, person paid back, say, uh, in the next 15 years or so. Uh, now, mortgage-backed security is a, is a very clever device by which the banks uh, put all of those uh, mortgages under a bond, and the, the bond is uh, is uh, traded in in the capital market. So what that does is to make your mortgage more liquid, because now before before uh, the invention of this instrument, uh, it was very hard to sell a mortgage, a single mortgage in the market, because the buyer had to know all the characteristics of uh, the mortgage uh, holder. Uh, so, uh, but after you put uh, those uh, mortgages, lots and lots of mortgages, under the umbrella of of a bond, uh, it becomes much easier to sell because uh, not every uh, borrower is the same, but statistically, you have a fairly good idea of the percentage of people that pay, etc. So you have a, a, something that delivers a flow of income which is predictable, highly predictable, and does not imply that you have to know any one of the, the characteristics of any one of the mortgages. So you make, uh, you create an asset that uh, is much more liquid and it yields a return. So it's more attractive than money. So if I may skip ahead... I think the problem with that it was a it is a brilliant idea. Uh, the problem is is that people bought the banks, held those using an enormous amount of borrowed money rather than than equity. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. So that's explain next... explain why that how that went wrong when um, things fell apart. Yeah, that uh, if in you see what I was saying, you see, it led to the view that. Uh, if you put lots and lots of mortgages under a bond, uh, the bond will look very much like money. But now it's a, 
is a money that yields a positive rate of return, which is what each of the, I mean, is the, the sum of uh, the, the mortgage payments included in the in the bond. So it's more attractive. Uh, is uh, dominated denominated in terms of of, of money, and uh, so uh, the banks, what they did, the shadow banks in particular, held those bonds in their assets and borrow against those bonds. Now uh, the lender or depositors to to these shadow banks felt. Uh, safe because uh, they thought that those uh, assets were highly liquid, that if for any reason they need to withdraw real money, uh, no problem, the bank would be able to sell those assets right away. Uh, they have been very stable because we went through what in the U.S. we call uh, the great moderation, so very little uh, uh, volatility in the market. Uh, so that gave, uh, encouraged the, the, the depositors to, uh, to go into that. Now, we have, I mean, it's not the, the retail depositor. Uh, this is, uh, was important particularly for, or relevant for, uh, uh, big corporations, pension funds and so on that, uh, do not, would not have the the protection of FDIC, for example. So now they felt protected, even though they did not have FDIC, they felt protected by the liquidity of the assets, of these assets held by, by banks. So what went uh, wrong? Well, because liquidity is in the eye of the beholder. So if someday somebody says uh, the emperor <laughs> is naked, uh, if people say somebody doubts uh, for example, suppose you say, okay, that's liquid, so individually uh, you can sell your bonds, no problem. But if a, a, a substantial number of uh, market players, for some reason, you coordinate the expectations, and they, they start to doubt. They think, wow, this, there are problems in the subprime market. Yeah, that's true, it's a small market, but here we have all of this huge stock of uh, MBS, mortgage-backed securities, and other securities of the same nature, uh, maybe that would be infected by what's going on in the supply market. Well, that's good enough to provoke what we call a run, because if now, say, 20% of the bondholders want to sell, you have to find a substantial number of buyers on the other side of the market. But if you see that 20% of those that hold those assets that supposedly know better than you are trying to sell, you probably step back and say, well, let me, let me wait a little bit. So when they try to sell, what, what can they get? I mean, the problem is that bonds have mortgages behind them. And these are promises to pay in the next 15 years, for example. So they don't pay right away. You don't, there is no cash enough. To, uh, to keep the prices up and the prices collapse. Is that the sudden stop? The sudden stop is the next stage. The next stage is as follows. Uh, let's um, uh, 
go back because to- I, I just if I let me interrupt for one second on the surface again the, the on this on the surface it's like what's the big deal okay so you found out it's not so liquid you go out to get your money you can't get it maybe or you panic and you try to sell it and so what should have happened is a lot of banks lost some money they had a bad quarter but that isn't what happened that that's yeah, and I could end right there. <laughs> the, the thing is, the thing is that uh, the money was being uh, channeled to house buyers at a relatively cheap cost for the buyer, and I will explain why I said relatively, uh, because uh, the. The bank could easily uh, wrap up those uh, mortgages under the umbrella of a bond and sell it in the open market out there. Now, when that channel uh, sort of collapses momentarily, then you have to go back to lending directly to the to to the to the house buyer. So the price or the interest rate that the house buyer uh, faces now increases. And that's equivalent to a, a, a sudden stop in, in credit, uh, which is what I call sudden stop. So that's how it happened. It happened because you are destroying a vehicle uh, that uh, was accepted to a large extent because it was, uh, it was liquid, uh, but now the liquidity momentarily at least of the vehicle is destroyed because prices are falling by 50%, and everybody is very confused. So at least momentarily, everybody holds back and says, I mean, the potential uh, savers, the savers hold back and say, hey, wait a second, uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to put my money in that bank anymore. I want to hold treasury bills. And that's what we call the liquidity trap, which is the other side of the sudden stop. Explain that. Yeah, because uh, I mean, prior to that, people uh, they 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 were willing. Uh, say, if you have an income of a thousand dollars, you were willing to deposit twenty dollars in in a bank, and uh, or in one of those uh, shadow banks. Now, the the credibility, the uh, the reliability of shadow banks uh, uh, is uh, shattered, and uh, so the, 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 the depositor uh, keeps the money in his pocket or tries to buy uh, treasury bills so that you take the money away from the, from the credit market, and that's how credit uh, dries up uh, immediately. So you're suggesting also that there's a flight to safety People want right. very safe stuff. So safe stuff suddenly is in very high demand, which means the return on that safe stuff has to go down dramatically. And you're suggesting that's why interest rates are so low? Is that a exactly. correct? Okay. Exactly. Exactly. That's precisely uh, the idea. And uh, that's why even though the epicenter of the crisis is in the U.S., we've seen the demand for U.S. liquidity, dollars and dollar uh, official assets. Uh, or liabilities rather, um, went up very sharply, and that's why interest rates went down. So why did all that spill over into areas outside the housing sector and outside the financial sector? Again, 
if you're a if you're naive, you might think, well, okay, so banks are going to have a bad year, a bad t- two years. The housing market's going to be hurt. There's going to be low prices for housing, which is great if you're in the market for a house. Not so good if you have to move. What's what are the real coming back to our original question of money being a veil or finance being a veil? Why do we have to now pay attention to this? Why isn't that just okay? So a bad time for these two sectors. Well, that's harder to to explain in full because we don't know. I mean, the problem with the financial sector is like it is like the the nervous system. It touches every note of your body. So you don't know. Uh, once uh, you have a credit crunch in in a large sector, um, now you start to ask yourself how reliable and uh, how creditworthy are, are the potential uh, borrowers because there are interactions between the the the, the um, uh, housing sector, uh, construction, and other sectors of, of the economy. Uh, so if, if, if construction has to, um, to go, to, to go down, I mean, output, uh, will go down, then there will be unemployment, then, uh, uh, the demand for the stuff that you use for construction will go down, etc. And, uh, and besides, <laughs> in addition, just to, uh, focus on, on, on the financial sector, uh, as anybody knows, I mean, uh, trade, there's a lot of, uh, uh trade credit. Uh, sometimes it's called inter-firm or inter-enterprise credit going on. And, uh, that, uh, when, so is, uh, the, the, uh, borrowers and lenders are, uh, uh, Involved in operations where, uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know your partner, you know the guy that you sell stuff to in, and extend credit, say a 90-day credit or something like that. But now you don't know if that guy is not involved, has not lent to, so for example, to the construction sector right. and now he's unable to get his money back and he won't be able to pay you. So there are all of those interactions which uh, nobody knows well that uh, leads to uh, individuals becoming more more risk-averse, if you wish. So let me make an analogy. We all understand from reading a little bit of history and a little bit of common sense that when, mm-hmm. there's, when there's hyperinflation, when their prices are rising very, very fast, all of a sudden – the role of money as a medium of exchange, as a way to avoid having to find someone who likes what I like, breaks down because I can't use it very effectively. And what you're saying here is that credit performs a very central role in all of, of the ongoings of business. And 99% of the time, you don't have to think about it, except when it's broken, in which case it causes a lot of problems. Now, that subtle and complicated mechanism that you're describing is not the standard mechanism that's invoked by Keynesians or monetarists for why we're in the mess. I, I've never thought about this before, but your description of finances avail makes me think about monetarism. Monetarists tend to think, well, as long as the money supply is increasing in a nice, steady way, everything goes great. But if there's a sudden drop, then things can get really bad. And 
we don't explain we don't need to explain why we just it's an empirical regularity and if it comes mm-hmm. from the, if it comes from the financial sector yeah we know that's bad but that's the only way the financial sector gets into the model it's like after the fact that there's been a contraction because of say the shadow banking system having a run then uh, things are going to be bad for a while and and we know how to fix that according to the the monetarists we just need to push the money supply back up it's a little more complicated than that and and to put that in context let's talk about some of the History of economic thought uh, insights you have from the paper, and why don't we start with let's we'll get to the monetarists, but let's let's start with Keynes. You suggest that the general theory and Keynesian insights are part of the reason why finance has been ignored in macroeconomic models. Yeah, and I uh, that's exactly what I said, <clears throat> uh, but um, I'm um, I'm not prepared to accuse. Uh, case of leaving out the, the financial sector himself, uh, of the picture, uh, because he, he had a much wider, uh, his analysis had a much wider scope than that. But I think what happened is that he was, uh, uh trying to convince uh, his, uh, peers that uh, some of the points that he, uh, or some of his insights were, were relevant. So he played very much by the rules of economics at the time. And, uh, so he, his analysis, as you know, is hinges upon, uh, one uh, basic, uh, uh, rigidity, weight rigidity in particular. He's concerned about that. And, uh, but he tries to, he just focuses on that rigidity and, uh, and then uh, the rest is very classical, if you wish. And one of the characteristics of the classical model is that markets work very, very well. Uh, so, but then uh, the popularizers of Keynes, particularly uh, Hicks' model that became very, very popular, and an economist called the ISLM model, uh, builds upon that, and that became very, very popular. Uh, that's the model of the 20th century. Still, we are using it. In, in many central banks have the the bare bones of that uh, of that model. So uh, I think that's how it happened. And since we didn't have a crisis like the, that in the 1930s until now, uh, that seemed to work. When you mentioned the ISLM model, I, I'm sure that the economics majors in our in my audience uh, gave a quiet groan. Uh, it. it one, besides being used by central banks, it's often uh, – it's also used frequently by <clears throat> teachers of macroeconomics for complicated exam questions. The question is, is it, is it an effective way of capturing the problems and, and policy solutions uh, out in the real world? And if you look at the current mess, how do you think it's done? There are defenders of it who say, oh, see, this proves that Keynes was right, that um, – we're in a liquidity trap, for example, so monetary policy is ineffective. They say we should – the stimulus and fiscal policy is very effective. We just didn't – it wasn't big enough. How do you think the Keynesian outlook – not Keynes. I agree with you. I think he was a subtler thinker than some of his followers and those givers of exams and some of those central banks. But how has Keynesianism fared in the current crisis? Yeah, no, I uh, – <laughs> the fact that um, – the ISLM model gives you unemployment and gives you a role for money and a role for fiscal policy 
doesn't imply that that's uh, uh, a useful insight. Uh, you can agree. You can agree with some of the uh, building blocks of the Keynesian model, but not necessarily with his policies. Uh, I mean, there is a big, big uh, leap of faith uh, to go from this uh, little model to say that you had to do what you had to do is increase uh, substantially increase government expenditure to get out of this mess. Now, my reaction to this is, let's take all of these building blocks, some of which are, are rigidities that we had to live with, so let's not forget about those, but let's bring in something that we have left out and it's now very central, and that is the financial sector. Let's try to understand what's going on and what are the policies that should help to to solve the financial problem. So solve it, it sounds very strange when you realize that the main factor behind the current crisis uh, lies in financial in the financial sector to say that the solution should then be an increase in government expenditure. It's a big jump there. Uh, maybe that's a solution because we don't find anything better than that. But before we do that, we should pay much more attention to how to fix the financial sector as such. And that's a little bit how I think about this. It's not easy, but uh, I think we should we should focus on 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 that. Well, I think what's powerful about the Keynesian model, and maybe correct, I'm a skeptic, but it could be correct, is that it kind of cuts through the diagnosis problem uh, and simplifies it. Instead of saying, well, the sicknesses was in the financial sector, so we have to fix the financial sector, they say, well, when the financial gets, sector gets sick or whatever caused the problem, we don't have to worry about that. We just have to increase aggregate demand. So spending does that. Monetary policy can do it. So we have this sort of magic cure that works for all diseases, but it's it, it sort of comes on the scene after the fact. It doesn't say uh, – and no good economic model right now I think is very good at diagnosis in ex ante, right? It, it's an ex post story. It says, okay, yeah. things went wrong, so but we can fix it. We have this magic pill. It's called aggregate demand. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a very good point. Let me, let me emphasize something. Keynes uh, theory is, uh, applies to uh, issues that, uh, that uh, you have to face after a crisis. Keynes does not have a good theory. In fact, his theory is very, very poor uh, about how the crisis comes about. Uh, the only thing he mentions in the book is animal spirit. Which is a uh, euphemism for I don't know. <laughs> exactly. And besides, it's not, <laughs> it's not very clever either because in macro, as uh, we said uh, before, I mean, for something to be relevant, it has to be macro, therefore systemic. So to say that we are in this mess because of uh, animal spirits, uh, you, what you're saying is not only that there is something like that and everybody may agree that there is something like that going on, and, and there's some microeconomists uh, are playing with ideas of that sort. I don't disagree with that. But the other thing is to say that uh, Monday morning, all of a sudden, we all decided that investment in housing was a bad idea, and we have a housing crisis right on 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 the on your doorstep. Uh, that is uh, what uh, a good theory should explain, and uh, and to say that it is animal spirits. I mean, what is behind that coordination that took place? So 
so coming back to what I said, I was saying about the the, the reason for the for for the crisis. Are, reasons are not deeply discussed in the general theory. And then there is this uh, little model that comes out where, as you said, uh, we have this uh, magic pill that uh, may may work. At least it, it works in the model. Uh, but uh, it's very far from, it's kind of strange. It's like going to your doctor and he says, you said, I have a chest pain. And he says, oh, that's animal spirit. Let me give you, I don't know, a glass of water. Uh, you probably feel better with a glass of water for the next few minutes. Uh, and then you die uh, because he doesn't know what happened to you. So that's what I'm afraid of, that uh, I see many economies, Keynesian economists, and uh, a la Krugman, for example, insisting that this is the right pill, when actually we have not tried that pill. We tried that pill in the Second World War, and uh, I was looking at some numbers, and government uh, deficit increased by, I don't know, 100%. Something like that. I mean, it was an, not a deficit, expenditure uh, doubled uh, during, on average, during the, the war years. Now, that's unthinkable now. Maybe it worked, <laughs> but uh, from a political point of view, it's just completely uh, uh, unthinkable. Well, uh, at the same time, you know, I'm, my skepticism is, and we've had Robert Higgs on this program to talk about it. The real the, the real economy didn't do so well during World War II. Measure GDP went up. It was not a time of prosperity. And then after the war, when government spending fell 60 percent, the Keynesians predicted a horrible depression, literally a depression, worse than the, yeah. than the recent one, and nothing happened. It was pretty good times for a few years. Then there was a little downturn, but it wasn't related necessarily to the spending, and it wasn't anything catastrophic. So – there's there's problems. Um, I, I want to defend animal spirits, by the way, just a little bit. I was making fun of it when I said it was a euphemism for I don't know. I don't deny the fact that psychology matters a lot and there can be coordinations in psych- coordination in psychology that, that has systemic effects. I, it's just that we don't have a very good understanding of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, let me say something. Uh, I'm, I don't like the animal spirits the way they are presented by Keynes and the and the Keynesians, when they insist on uh, people all of a sudden uh, feeling depressed and uh, investing much less, say fifty percent less than they did in the in the recent past, uh, I think that's that's hard to uh, for me to swallow. Let me put it that way. But uh, on the other hand, with liquidity, it's a different story. I was mentioning before that uh, there is a that, that that there was some coordination. Yes, the the difference is is, is subtle, but it's worth mentioning. Uh, in the Keynesian's uh, uh, setup, if I want to have a real big effect from investment uh, contraction to output, uh, I had to have a big change in investment, right? Uh, in uh, when you think about uh, liquidity, it's something that can be destroyed without any big switch anywhere. It's just it's slight because there is multiple equilibria. If I can use the economist uh, jargon, there is 
more than one equilibrium because there is this phenomenon that liquidity is much more subtle, uh, more uh, less uh, less of a fundamental than production, productivity, technical progress. Those things are there and they stay there. They are not destroyed. Liquidity can be destroyed. Imagine all of a sudden Obama comes on TV and he says, look, now we have uh, the dollar is now replaced by the Americano, which looks completely different. Uh, <laughs> I wonder whose picture would be on it, but never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> well, who knows? Not. No comment. Go ahead. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Yes, I agree. But if that uh, were to happen, the dollar would be worthless, right? It would be something that people would keep for to show their grandchildren. Yep. But uh, so that shows that uh, that's a problem with liquidity. Yes, I, I agree with you that that's why I'm not against animal spirits. But you need a little bit of animal spirits to destroy some assets, like uh, liquid assets. You, those a little bit of animal spirits are not enough to destroy capital. Let's let's turn to uh, to Irving Fisher. Uh, who's sort of the forgotten man of the uh, of the time of the Great Depression? Uh, there are a few, a lot of forgotten people there, but let's uh, look at Irving Fisher. What was his insight? Why is it important? And why did it get forgotten? Yeah, that's a very interesting story. Uh, he, let me say, his insight is really. Uh, at some level, very, very, very simple. He says uh, uh, he was uh, the, the the famous paper was written in 1933, and he had a book before. But he was very influenced by what he saw during the Great Depression, and what he saw is that uh, um, wholesale prices, for example, fell by more than 30 percent. So, if you have a corporation and you borrow money. And uh, uh, at uh, say five percent, and uh, and after the depression, or because of the Great Depression, the price of your output falls by thirty percent. All of a sudden, the the real burden for you has increased tremendously uh, because it was the, the burden of your loan. Of your loan, in terms of your output, in terms of your income. So what he points out that when prices fall uh, uh, precipitously, like it happened in 1930s, that increases the real value of the debt and uh, may make uh, some debts uh, not uh, payable and uh, lead to bankruptcies. And once you have bankruptcies, it's the stuff that we were discussing before, since we are all in this mess together, uh, it's very hard to know what's happening what happens, and there is a generalized flight to safety. And you, then you have the liquidity trap and so on and so forth. So his insight was that uh, uh, had, it was based on a rigidity, uh, another type of rigidity. And the rigidity is that uh, many loans in practice, even today, are what economists call non-state contingent, nominal loans, very simple loans. You get a loan at 10%, independently of how well you do, uh, or independently of whether it rains or snows or whatever. So you don't make your loan contingent, especially, say, for housing. 
you get a mortgage, you get a mortgage at a certain rate, and you will have to pay that independent to what happened to the price of your house, and so on. So those loans, which are very simple, very rigid, and very common, are subject to this uh, phenomenon that he called debt, debt deflation. So it's costly, and it's costly to renegotiate, obviously, exactly. with any one right. case. The, the puzzle here is that we we didn't have that kind of – and we did a podcast uh, on Fisher's uh, Insight, by the way, with Garrett Jones. We'll put a link up to uh, for, for listeners. The, the puzzle is, is that we didn't have – people were very worried about deflation in this last crisis because they'd seen perhaps correctly that that's what Japan had struggled with in, in their stagnation. So we didn't have that deflation, but you're making the point that, okay, we didn't have it overall in general, but we had it in the housing sector, and then that that debt cascade destroyed – was very destructive within that sector, and it's not a trivial sector. We've been talking about like it's one little corner of the economy. Obviously, the housing market's extremely important. It's it's where a lot of people have a, the bulk of their household wealth. Yeah, um, no, no. I meant the subprime is a corner of the market. Yeah. Was a corner. Correct. Yeah. Um, well, should we – should Irving Fisher be get more attention now? Yeah, no, I think the the, the mistake, quote unquote, uh, you, you can you can uh, attribute to uh, to Friedman and Schwartz uh, and Friedman particularly. He pushed very much the idea that uh, uh, the big mistake uh, in the 1930s was for the Fed not to increase money supply uh, and keep prices uh, from. From falling, uh, he didn't. He doesn't discuss why. Uh, it's kind of a very empirical observation. That it's he the made. magic black box of money affects things, just like exactly. aggregate demand affects things. It's the same idea. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, but a possible rationalization, and I'm surprised that he doesn't mention that. Uh, they don't mention that in, in, the, in the great book that they wrote. Uh, they. Um, they, they don't mention they don't mention uh, uh, Irving Fisher, but Irving Fisher had an explanation has an explanation why you don't want that to happen, and that is the real value of the debt uh, goes up, and then you may have uh, a, a, a slew of uh, open crises and so on and so forth. So, uh, uh, but he's, they stopped there. And uh, so now what we have done is to follow his advice and keep uh, prices from falling. But it's a CPI. does not include the price of housing. So we're still not out of the of the woods. And we seem to indicate that the credit market is still quite stagnant, uh, even here in the States. Uh, and, uh, so that seemed to indicate that you had to do more. Uh, and, uh, when you think about it in terms of, uh, with the lens of Irving Fisher, I guess what he would say is, yeah, okay, the CPI, uh, has not collapsed, but still, uh, those that are indebted, uh, <laughs> being indebted in order to buy a house face exactly the same problem that he was concerned with, the debt deflation. When you say the CPI doesn't include housing, it does include okay, yeah, yeah. a measure of the price of houses. It did, and it did. No, it, I agree. Okay, but what you're really saying is that you can't just look at prices generally as an aggregate. You have to look at sometimes pieces of it. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. So uh, let me so let me defend <clears throat> let me defend Friedman a little bit, at least intellectually. Um, 
and and I, I'm not going to uh, – who knows what he would have said in response to your challenge, but I can use his surrogate, which is Ben Bernanke. So famously, Ben Bernanke said, we learned in the Great Depression, we learned from Milton Friedman that in the Great Depression, the big mistake we made is we let the money supply drop. So he also ignored Irving Fisher. And then he came along. He happened to find himself in a position of power. He's the chair of the Fed. The crisis does come. And sure enough, he lets – he keeps the money so – he injects a lot of money into the banks, and we can debate whether he injected the right amount. We can debate whether it was a good idea to pay interest on reserves. I think not, but whatever. Ben Bernanke, if he were listening, would say, all this stuff about the financial sector and Irving Fisher is irrelevant. All we need to do is keep the money supply up. We did that, and that's why we didn't have a Great Depression. And similar to the magic black box of Keynes and aggregate demand – you don't have to worry about the financial sector. You just have to keep the money supply going. And we found a mechanism to do that through quantity. We did it through interest rate policy. We did it through quantitative easing. Didn't the Fed do a good job? Wouldn't that be his defense? I can ignore all that stuff you're worried about, Professor Calvo. Yeah, no, I'm not accusing him of not doing the right thing. Uh, I think the Fed, uh, what they did is uh, uh, really. Uh, something to be celebrated and studied. So uh, nothing against that. I think I, I would agree that we avoided the Great Depression, maybe because of the very proactive policy of, of the Fed, not only here, but around the world. The, the developed uh, market uh, central banks. So I don't, I don't deny that. Uh, the fact that the Fed, however, the interest rate... Uh, was not uh, strong enough uh, shows that, and in fact, the first QE uh, was an attempt to buy toxic assets. Uh, indicates that they, they went beyond just controlling money supply a la Friedman, say. Uh, this was a rather heterodox policy that they followed. So I don't think they were following the book of Friedman. Uh, they went beyond that, and of course, maybe Friedman would have said the same thing. Uh, unfortunately, he died before this process um, uh, developed, but uh, uh, it became clear to them that the increasing money supply, as a pure monetarist would have said, uh, without touching anything else, was not enough. Otherwise, why buying toxic assets? Why buying uh, commercial paper? Stuff like that, which is uh, unprecedented for the Fed. So I, I, I have nothing uh, negative to say about the Fed, and I think probably the Fed uh, could not be more expansionary, uh, more proactive, because uh, the Fed does not have a mandate to, or the chart doesn't allow uh, Bernanke to, to be more aggressive. But he was as aggressive as you can be, in, uh, and different from a pure monetarist. So right. I'm not accusing any any of these people. These are fantastic economists, and actually are rather the exception in the in the profession. Well, let, let me push back on that a little bit. Uh, maybe a lot. We'll see. But you suggest that that their their actions are to be celebrated. One, I'd say it's a little too early to tell. The Fed has a very large balance sheet. And we're not quite sure what the consequences of that will be as it, I hope, gets unwound. We don't know. And I guess the second question would be, how do we 
why do we praise the Fed for injecting money into the banking system that's still sitting on the books of the Fed? Where's the stimulus aspect of that? Where's the increase in the money in the in the effective money supply? Where's the increase in liquidity? What they did is I agree with you, they did respond in a financial sector way by repairing the balance sheets of the banks, but that appears to be all they did. They didn't have much of an impact. See, you can argue that they it would have been much worse, but the economy right now is extremely unhealthy, it, it seems. And it's not obvious that monetary policy has been helpful in that in that dimension, especially when it's sitting on the books of the Fed. What's your response to that? Well, my response is that uh, we do not have to forget that we have a financial problem. The financial sector is uh, dysfunctional. Uh, small firms, households, uh, because of the crisis, I mean, uh, the, the collateral they have has, has shrunk and made it more difficult for them to borrow. Uh, there is some confusion in the market, things that I don't know the details, but uh, we can read about it, that uh, prevents or stops banks from extending credit because they don't have enough information. So that's a, that's a very difficult issue that it's very unlikely that you will solve from the Fed unless you you follow much more micro uh, policy that the Fed is not entitled to to pursue. So I agree with you that we are still in in in, in the middle of a crisis uh, and coming out of it very slowly. Uh, no doubt about it. But uh, my only point is that the Fed uh, they probably did as much as they can. But however, I would uh, make a point of uh, more conjecture than anything else about uh, else about interest rate policy. I'm not so much concerned about the amount of liquidity that is being uh, put out and is in the hands of the banks, as you said. But the fact that uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the Fed and, and the central banks, uh, they, they follow the standard practice of using uh, the interest rate as an instrument. So they use the interest rate until it hits zero. And then, since that was not enough, they started the QE process. Now, I'm a little concerned. It's not obvious that you uh, should let the interest rate go down to zero before you use QE, because QE, I call it defragmentation policy. It's a policy to try to open up, in my, in my mind, the, open up the credit channel. Uh, and the fact that interest rate went down to zero and still you didn't see enough reaction in the market is an indication that the interest rate controlled by the Fed has no, very, very little impact on the credit market, which is quite clear. The credit market was broken in the private sector, and all you do by lowering interest rate is to lend in cheap, cheaper to, I mean, lowering the cost of uh, borrowing for the, for the official sector, but not for the household or the small firm sector. So it's not clear that when you see that you're using an instrument that became, that apparently became, was obviously um, ineffective. But instead of stopping and saying, we have to do something else, we kept lowering that interest rate. Now, what, what is my concern? My concern is by lowering the interest rate on very liquid assets, 
you may be giving incentives for the system to uh, for investors to go out and in search of other liquid assets different from the, the, the U.S. Uh, liabilities. And that may have encouraged uh, the flow of funds that went into emerging market, for example, and that now, in my uh, view, has perhaps increased the, the vulnerability of emerging markets, something that we saw recently uh, by the the failed uh, tapering uh, experiment uh, that they didn't take effect, but had a very big impact on countries that until then had received funds, which I believe, in my mind, they are very much motivated by a search for yield and liquidity at the same time. But That's... once they, they feel that the markets feel that there's a threat that interest rates in the U.S. will go up or there's some tightening in liquidity in the U.S., the funds fly back immediately. And then you have, in, in emerging markets, the phenomena that we discussed a moment ago, a liquidity crunch, and after that, uh, a, a sudden stop, is something that those countries have experienced in the past. Yeah, well, that's, times. that's a very deep thought, and obviously we don't know if it's true, uh, but it reminds me, and I think it should remind all of us, how complicated this this world is. You, you allude to it in your paper uh, the complexity of the world. And, and of course, central bankers have to pretend that everything's under control. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Before before we're out of time, your paper is very complementary to the, uh, the Austrian economists Mises and Hayek. Uh, as far as I know, you're, you're, you don't have a past academic history as an Austrian economist. Those who are Austrian economists tend to like Mises and Hayek. Those who aren't Austrians tend to ignore them. So I was rather – struck by the fact that you said we have something to learn from the Austrian business cycle of the 20s and 30s of Mises and Hayek. So talk about why their insights are potentially very important today. Yeah, first of all, uh, why uh, I ignore uh, Hayek and from Mises, and the reason is that uh, uh, that you don't, you, don't, you don't see the names mentioned in in standard macroeconomics uh, um, courses in the best universities in the U.S., there are exceptions, of course, but uh, but in most uh, those authors are not are not read, and um, and uh, so that's not a, uh, an excuse for not for being ignorant uh, about it. But I I declare myself ignorant before I started to think about the things. Uh, about the, 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 these, these factors, these uh, observations uh, of the, of the uh, Austrian school. Um, now, in this paper, which as you, you mentioned, the title of the paper is Puzzling on, uh, on this crisis, on the anatomy of this crisis, uh, I'm still puzzling. <laughs> So in, in the process of puzzling about it, I went back and, and read these guys, and I was impressed by the fact that these guys were very well aware that these, for example, credit booms uh, could uh, foster a credit bust and, and so on. And these two uh, authors in particular, they were very 
forceful about uh, making those cases, and I think Hayek is the most uh, subtle of the two for my my, my taste. So um, we have in Northern, partly I think also, I mean, I'm, I'm declaring myself at, at fault, but on the other hand, they were not easy to read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're not the best stylists, especially no. Hayek's uh, work. Hayek, right. Very difficult to read. Yeah, I'm very, with you. There. Very difficult. And uh, some, I, I was reading that uh, Milton Friedman said once that he, he, his theory was incomplete. Uh, and maybe it, it was. I mean, he, he intended to write. Uh, you probably know much better than me to 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 continue writing on. On, uh, on some of the topics, but uh, the, the way the 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 the, the theory uh, has been um, has uh, been uh, we have inherited. Uh, they have very good insights, which are very relevant from a from a uh, empirical point of view. But on the other hand, they fail to develop a theory. Uh, that uh, is comparable to the other theories that have been developed in the 20th century. So it seems more like a statement than a, a, an elaboration where you come from assumptions into theorems. They didn't write that way. Uh, we have become much more mathematical in the economics profession, which is good on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's bad because you miss some very deep insights from people like Hayek and von Mises. So that's yeah. my explanation. <laughs> let let A be animal spirits is not really a mathematical um, solution. Um, would you say that also about Hyman Minsky? Do you think we need to pay more attention to Minsky? Yeah, another guy which is difficult, who is difficult to read. Uh, he's, he's fighting. Um, he, he was, I'm surprised how and successful he was even to come to persuade somebody like uh, Jim Tobin. Uh, Jim Tobin has a review of his famous book, the latest, his latest book, and uh, he's quite negative. And, uh, and uh, I was surprised because Tobin was one of the few that brought into the picture different uh, liquidity, liquid assets and so on. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's difficult. I, I think, I mean, the lesson is that, uh, simple models carry the day. And the danger is that precisely simple models carry the day. And so the ISLM was so powerful, perhaps because it was very simple. Uh, but it was too simple. Well, to quote your paper, you, you have a sentence in there I, I loved. It says, one has to realize that it is very hard to see beyond conventional models because reality is immensely complex. And I think um, if I can just put a plug in for Hayek's Nobel Prize address, uh, the pretense of knowledge, what he was really saying, and I think the reason he he didn't do more in this area is that I think he found it too hard. And your paper has some very interesting things. People who are professional economists, I think listening and students will enjoy talking about these issues of how do you preserve rationality or some of the basic assumptions of economics within the context of, say, herd behavior, coordination? There's a lot of interesting methodological challenges that you're interested in taking up. And on that note, let's close with your thoughts on where macroeconomics is headed. 
So Guillermo Calvo is reading Hayek and Mises and Minsky, and that's great. But you're a little bit alone. You're not totally alone. It's a but it's quiet. It's not a it's not a big group that's with you. We're and many many first rate economists. Uh, I you know I've read a lot of this literature. How people respond to the crisis. I'll just say, well, you know, my model was right before, and it's still right. This is nothing unusual. There's nothing different here. It's just a standard application of what I've been saying all along. Do you think that viewpoint is going to persist, or do you think we're in for some more fundamental changes in, in macroeconomics that might appear right now? I'm very concerned about that because not only many of our older colleagues uh, think that way, and that's natural. Uh, Absolutely. Right? We all <laughs> have to be you have to dance. You have to dance with the one you came with. Uh, yeah, people are loyal. That's right. Right, and um, and thinking is is uh, is costly. Uh, so, well, uh, I don't want to disparage anyone, but uh, the, the the thing is that and some I'm, of them I'm, can be right, right? They might be right. I, my my view is, I'm not. I'm really. I'm not being critical of any one person, but they can't all be right because they're all depending models that don't go together so well. Right. Now, my concern is that I see graduate students being fettered by their, their advisors uh, and uh, following on, on those lines because they want to get a PhD and then they want to get their papers published in good journals and so on. So there is an inertia, an enormous inertia there. And some of the papers that I see, which see coming out, for example, in the collection of the National Bureau of Economic Research, I'm amazed. There are many papers that are coming out these days were especially theoretical papers by outstanding analysts, uh, <clears throat> where <clears throat> the assumption is, uh, the one key assumption is that the credit market is perfect. Uh, it's working perfectly. Uh, and then, then try to apply the, the implications of the model to what we see out there and to have a debate on whether a fiscal policy is the right thing to do or not. When in my mind, they're just the very assumptions that they make invalidate anything they get, try to get out of it. So there is a kind of inertia and still very high uh, respect for mathematical sophistication, uh, which I have nothing negative to say, but I'm concerned when mathematics overtakes economics. And uh, I, uh, in fact, <laughs> the paper you mentioned I made a very uh, uh, conscious attempt to to keep myself out of technicalities because I think we are at the point, and that's what I'm trying to tell my students, uh, where we have to think about some basic issues. Uh, we have to look at the real world. Uh, there's a lot of data available. Uh, with a minimum of, of theory and minimum of prejudice and see what the, the numbers are telling us. I mean, what, what's happening out there? And I think that's, that's very valuable. This, uh, uh, this urge to, to go back to the old models and have them tell you an answer which looks like it is uh, uh, in line with the facts, I think it's very dangerous. Partly, you know, because one of the things that have become very popular is uh, calibration. 
And calibration, what you do, you have a model which is completely theoretical construct, put some shocks into the model, play with the shocks, and then see if the model replicates what you see out there. Well, if you keep playing with the shocks, eventually you hit the mark. But uh, uh, that doesn't mean you are closer to reality. Uh, now, in order to, to, to do that, you spend lots and lots of hours uh, programming your models and so on and so forth, and not thinking about the real world, but thinking about your model. Uh, and there is a lot, a lot of uh, activity and effort input uh, in those things. That's why I'm, I'm a little bit uh, 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 concerned that at least from uh, top academic places, we are not going to get new, fresh ideas which are useful. On the other hand, policymakers are very active, and I'm having more fun now going to meetings of central banks and so on, because those guys, they have to face the real world. They cannot pretend, uh, I mean, hide themselves uh, behind a model. My guest today has been Guillermo Calvo of Columbia University. Guillermo, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Not at all. Thank you for inviting me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.